Today's episode is presented by Early Bird. Early Bird is the simplest way for parents, family, and friends to collectively invest in a child's financial future starting at the earliest age. Early Bird's mobile app empowers parents and families to start saving for their child's financial future in a matter of minutes, while activating a child's broader community to gift contributions on birthdays, holidays, or any occasion. Christian, I know saving for my child's college education can be stressful, especially wanting your child to have the best opportunity available. That's why we're teaming up with Early Bird to give our listeners a free $15 investment to give to a child you love. Simply go to partners.getearlybird.com io slash podcast or the link in our show notes download the app and create an account today early bird build the nest and invest in the children you love nerds it's time to suit up and nerd up launching badass rockabilly track now attempting daring escape time to save the world with some wrestling video games movies horror and more launching ans in three two one welcome to the amazing nerd show hey this is christian hey this is damon and this is the amazing nerd show all right this week we're gonna be reviewing the film don't breathe 2 we're also gonna be talking the latest episode of what if and we're gonna be breaking down the finale of the bad batch and of course we have AEW's brand new show rampage to talk about all right but before we move on make sure to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform and while you're at it, give us a five-star review and DM us a screenshot. Not only will we read it on the show, but we'll send you some amazing Nerd Show swag. Let's get into the news. Every week, we collect the biggest headlines and rumors of Nerdum. We're not mild-mannered reporters. We're mere podcasters with opinions. Well, first up, could the rumors be true? Is Marvel working on a live-action Secret Wars? So take this with a grain of salt, but it definitely makes sense if you look at, like, where the MCU is headed. Um, So what happened, apparently, was Marvel approached Jim Shooter uh, to do a novel based on the Secret Wars as he was the writer of the original Secret Wars storyline. When they sent him the contract, though, he could tell that there was a lot more to it than just the book, since I'm guessing it was padded down with a lot of like legalese if you will so he ended up turning down the contract because he could tell something else was up so then senior vice president of marvel entertainment's publishing david bogart personally reached out to him uh bogart allegedly apologized for the contractual hijinks and apparently offered a new retrospective work for hire contract with a ten thousand dollar payout shooter being a longtime veteran in the business could read between the lines and tell that Marvel and Disney were covering their legal bases for getting a Secret Wars project in development for the MCU. So according to Shooter, he straight out asked Bogart, this means you're making a movie, right? To which the Marvel executive allegedly responded, what, I'm not allowed to tell you that. Shooter then replied, I think you just did. But anyway, um, like we've talked about before on the show, this has been long rumored to be the next like big MCU event. Uh, with even like the Russo brothers uh, a couple years ago saying that they would come back, you know, for Secret Wars. Uh, now, most likely they're probably going to follow Jonathan Hickman's Secret Wars storyline from years back since it deals with more of a warring multiverse aspect. But I'm sure that they're going to dot their I's and cross their T's and make sure everything is copacetic when it comes to the original rights. Yeah, it's definitely no secret that that's the way we're going with Marvel at this point. 
but um, it is it's hilarious that they they might have been trying to trick him into signing this giant contract so yeah it's <laughs> definitely a little disturbing though because a lot of these stories are starting to leak out um you know with like comic book creators getting the short end of the stick when it comes to like th these different films that are like based off of their stories um you know they're getting paid like next to nothing uh, so I don't know. I'm wondering if like in the future, if creators are going to be a little more hesitant to just sign away all their rights um, when it comes to their creations, uh, you know, but it's just kind of the way of life with the big two, you know, Marvel and DC, uh, you know, you're kind of a hired gun. Exactly. And you would think that, I don't know, writers would be getting a little bit more royalties or something when it comes to these projects. But I mean, or, I they're know. making so much money off of their stories. Exactly. So. Share the fucking wealth. Exactly. It's just unfortunate <laughs> because a lot of these billion dollar, you know, franchises are all starting with, you know, their pens. So you would think that they would get some kind of compensation that would make sense. Well, it looks like Riri Williams, a.k.a. Ironheart, will debut in Black Panther 2. So Marvel Studios president Kevin Foggy has confirmed to ComicBook.com that Dominic Throne will make her MCU debut as Ironheart in Black Panther Wakanda Forever ahead of the release of her self-titled series. So this feels kind of out of left field. Um, I didn't see her like debuting in the MCU this way, but I guess it could work. I mean, if you think about it at the end of Black Panther, uh, T'Challa, you know, sets up that outreach program uh, in honor of his uncle. So maybe like Shuri, who's I believe put in charge of that, like that's how like she discovers Riri. Yeah, maybe like she like needs something solved real quick and she can't work on it herself. She just sends someone from the research club to do it. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Or maybe she just like catches her eye like with her talent and everything because yeah. i mean i believe in the comics when we first meet up with ruby she's like 15 so i mean it it, it could work right possibly <laughs> this actress is 23 years old so i mean we'll see well but it's hollywood people always play <laughs> younger so <laughs> trust me i grew up through the I think early zach, 2000s i think 90s. zach from saved by the bell was like 25 yeah, <laughs> you know, along with you know Screech and Gang, uh -huh. um, and then uh, what uh, Ralph Macchio was like forty when he was playing the Karate Kid. So, well, I mean, this definitely makes me even more excited to see Black Panther two, and it's just awesome that we're going to be getting like Riri in the MCU sooner than later. Well, up next, Anthony Mackie officially signs his contract for Captain America 4. So according to Deadline, Marvel Studios and Anthony Mackie have come to terms and reached an agreement for the star to don the red, white, and blue again and pick up the shield in Captain America 4. Uh, right now, that's really all the details we have casting-wise. Uh, we don't even know if Sebastian Stan will be back as the Winter Soldier at this point. Uh, what we do know is that Malcolm Spellman, the creator and head writer of The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, will be penning the script for the film. Uh, obviously, Captain America 4 does not have a premiere date right now since it's still in the very early stages of pre-production. Well, up next, we have a whole lot of Marvel casting rumors. Yes, Christian, we sure do. Uh, it looks like Ben Kingsley is all but confirmed for an MCU return in Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings uh, after making an appearance at the premiere. Uh, I guess that's a telltale sign, according to people. <laughs> I'm sure they probably want to tie up some of the loose ends after Iron Man 3 kind of botched the whole Mandarin storyline especially since we know we'll be meeting the real deal in Shang-Chi. 
So it only kind of makes sense that we get at least a cameo. Well, we also got some Venom 2 casting rumors. I guess a couple of Spider-Man fan accounts on Twitter noticed one theatrical chain in the United Kingdom had a peculiar synopsis uploaded for the Spider-Man sequel. On the movie's webpage, on the website for Britain's View Cinema, they list none other than J.K. Simmons himself AKA Jonah Jameson. So while this might be a typo, if you remember the Sony president earlier this summer did say there were plans in place to connect like the multiple cinematic universes. Uh, so this might be the start of that. Uh, we do know that Michael Keaton's Vulture is in the long delayed Morbius film. So I guess we'll just have to wait and see. And hey, we might also be seeing some of your favorite cast members from Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. appearing in the Disney Plus series Secret Invasion. So this one, might be chalked up to fans like wishful thinking, uh, but I do hope it's true. So I guess what happened was when news broke that Chloe Bennett was leaving the CW's uh, Powerpuff Girls series, Due to scheduling conflicts, a lot of fans started to speculate that she might be joining the cast of the Secret Invasion series on Disney+. Then I guess Elizabeth Henstridge, Bennett's former co-star, Gemma herself, also got fans talking when she posted an Instagram video of her sipping champagne and celebrating purchasing a new house in Atlanta. So in the post, Elizabeth mentions that she can't enjoy the house just yet because her bags are already packed to head off to England. So this got a lot of people talking because Secret Invasion is being filmed in England. Uh, but some have pointed out that she was born there and probably still has family there. Um, I hope all this is true and that both of them are in Secret Invasion. I think it'd be great, especially for fans of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. But I don't know. I mean, it just once again feels like wishful thinking and definitely a bit of a stretch. But it's a real slow news week and people love to speculate. I mean, yeah, most likely she's just going home to visit some family. <laughs> but uh, I mean, yeah, I like the character. I like uh, Gemma and Chloe in the show and stuff like that. So I, I, I'd be interested to see if they would be willing to pick up Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D.'s characters. I think I'm more interested in them doing, you know, Daredevil and Luke Cage and all that. But, uh, you know, it, it is what Even it is. Even if it's just like as background characters. For the mm -hmm. series and just a little nod for you know longtime agents of shield fans i mean i think it'd be a nice little treat but i just have a hard time imagining them having like a major role in the series so um you know maybe maybe quake i maybe i mean she was part of the avengers mm -hmm. at one point but Gemma, i don't know like maybe a little <laughs> easter egg here or there <laughs> uh -huh. but then you got to bring in fits and then, I mean, Coulson's got to be, I mean, although Coulson, I think, is actually supposed to be rumored to be in the series, too. So maybe, oh, like, okay. it's his little crew or something, and they're just in the background just to pop the fans. He's going to pull one of those, I have a team. Right. And they'll just be in the background a little and bit. And then they all die or something. Or they're all scrolls. <laughs> that, that'd be all fantastic, would be right? Uh -huh. <laughs> they're all scrolls. <laughs> I'd love that. Um, I don't know. I stopped watching the show after like season three, I think so. Because I think Coulson actually dies in the series, too. I might be wrong, um, but he's still technically dead in like the MCU. So <laughs> I mean, he would definitely have to be a scroll, you know, regardless, I guess, <laughs> you know, unless it's the whole multiverse and, you know, they're like, whatever. They come up with some comic book logic reason yeah, to bring him back. They could. They could. Uh, it is what it is. I'd be fine with it. I'd love to see Coulson again. So I mean, 
not to fall down this rabbit hole, but I did like that fact or that element that they had in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. where they kind of went on this path of like, did, you know, Nick Fury like, you know, fake this knowing that he could bring him back um, to, you know, manipulate the Avengers even further. Um, and it was just like a small little like thing they went over in the show. Yeah, but. like did Fury like purposely like not tell the team that Coulson could possibly survive using like mm-hmm. Kree technology or blood or something weird, right? That's how they brought him back on the show. Yeah, they had one on ice in the basement. It somewhere. was weird. I don't I don't remember exactly what happened on the show. It's been a while since I've watched it, but I don't know. It'd be cool to have Coulson back, like, in the MCU proper. I I enjoyed him being part of Captain Marvel, even though that was, you know, a flashback. So, why the hell not? And bring his team along with him, damn it. Well, right as we're in the middle of recording this episode, the Eternals dropped a new trailer. That's right, at like 2 o'clock in the morning. So, (laughs) (laughs) allowing us to be, like, the first to react to it. Well... At least record a reaction to it. (laughs) Because this episode's still not coming out till Friday, so. Why didn't you guys help fight Thanos? Or any war, all the other terrible things throughout history. We were instructed not to interfere in any human conflicts unless deviants are involved. By who? Alright, so this is the second trailer... But the final trailer, they're saying, whatever. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) But this trailer, we did get a lot more story than last trailer, which was just basically a giant montage clip. Um, You know, Mm. and they really kind of gave us an explanation of like who and what the Eternals are. So um, this was pretty fucking epic, I gotta say. Uh, We start off with uh, Ajax, uh, Selma Hayek's character, explaining that because of the events of Endgame, when the humans brought back half the population of the galaxy, that was enough energy to start the emergence, which I'm guessing has something to do with the Celestials, who I think we get a glimpse of like throughout this entire trailer. But she now says that Earth has seven days to what? Exactly, I have no clue. Um, next, we hear the reason exactly why the Eternals have been laying dormant, like, you know, and never lifting a finger throughout history to help humanity. And to sum it up, it's all due to it just not being their mission, that the Celestials put them there basically to deal with the Deviants, and that's it. In the comics, we know that it's the Celestials who lay down this edict for the Eternals. So I'm guessing that's probably the same here in this film. But apparently now that the Eternals know that they only have seven days to something happening, (laughs) this has changed things. It feels like the Eternals are now gathering again to maybe take on whatever this is that's showing up, which I'm guessing is probably the Celestials. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so the rest of the trailer is basically the group reuniting. We see a lot of Icarus looking like a badass. Um, I was definitely more sold on his whole look here. He looked a lot more comic book accurate than I kind of remember him looking in the first trailer. Um, I don't know if I'm misremembering because <laughs> it was a while ago now, it feels like. We see a lot of the Eternals battling different kinds of beasts, which I'm guessing are the Deviants. Uh, There's also moments where it seems like they're showing, like, the Eternals throughout history, um, just reacting to different things. I mean, overall, I really dug the look of the film. It looked a lot different than your standard, like, Marvel fare. Um, I don't know. Christian, what did you think? Um, I think I'm a little less enthusiastic. There's... 
the the effects and stuff look a little bit cooler now that we've seen them more in play you know before we just got stills of them standing there and looking at you know whatever's approaching and i, I think that looks cool and all but i, I don't know it's been a tough sale from the get-go for me because i just i don't know too much about the eternals and stuff like that and nothing about this trailer got me that interested in knowing them even further um that's just i don't know i i just haven't been sold on them as characters just yet and i, I walked into guardians of the galaxy feeling the same way though so i'm I, i'm i'm expecting this to you know change my mind on them as a team it's funny that you mentioned the guardians because that's the first time we see the celestials uh but these two movies feel like they exist in two different universes almost right <laughs> Yes. Um, And while I agree with you, I'm like, I'm not over the moon excited for this film by any means. Uh, You know, Marvel's got the track record to, you know, at least get me in the theater. Mm -hmm. Um, But this trailer did go a long way of, I don't know, at least get me looking forward to it. Because I do like the fact that it feels like something different from Marvel. And I've never been, like, an Eternals fan at all. Like, I've never picked up an Eternals book (laughs) throughout, like, Mm. my, like, comic book fandom. Uh, But I don't know. Everything that they showed me in this trailer got me at least, like, interested in it. Um, So maybe this film changes that. No, I do think you're right. It it does feel like something completely new for the MCU as a whole. And I think I am ready personally for them to experiment more. And I I think we're going to see that um, throughout these next few films in general. So maybe this is going to be something brand new that will change our minds Mm -hmm. to what (laughs) the MCU has hold um, has for us. I mean, it's definitely got an amazing cast. Yes. Like, I forgot how huge the cast is and, like, you know, that Angelina Jolie's in this fucking movie. <laughs> like, I was like, oh, yeah, wait a second. Um, and then, what, like, half of Game of Thrones, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm really curious to see how this is all going to affect the rest of the MCU. Especially if it is the Celestial showing up. Like, you've got these godlike beings, you know, knocking on your front door all of a sudden. So, I mean, that's got to change the universe. Yeah, I mean, you would think at least one adventure would notice that the uh, the world's coming to an end in seven days, but we'll, we'll find out. <laughs> you would hope at least. Uh huh. <laughs> in the comic books, that you know, the teams would just be like off planet. Hmm. You know, like the Fantastic Four was always off planet, or the Avengers would be out like fighting the Kree or something. So, you know, it would just be like Spider-Man left there. <laughs> Spider-Man No One's Home. Ah, that's nice. (laughs) I applaud that. That's good You see? (laughs) See what I did there? Uh Uh-huh. Spider-Man versus the Celestials. He did get cosmic powers at one point, just briefly, so it could work. It could. Anyway, (laughs) let's move on with the show. All right, Christian, it's that time again. Let's go ahead and break down the second episode of Marvel's What If. Warning, spoiler alert. Spoilers for Marvel's What If ahead. You have been warned. Star-Lord, I'm a huge fan of your work. What are you doing here? That was not the reaction I was expecting. Hey, 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 stop! Show some respect. This is 
the Star-Lord, legendary outlaw, steals from the powerful and gives to the powerless. Should we be bowing? I feel like we should be bowing. While the first episode of What If felt, for me, a little bit too similar at times at, you know, to the original timeline with just swapping Cap for Peggy, uh, but this second episode really just flips the entire MCU upside down with a classic mistake by the Ravagers and is a bit more in line for what I expected for the series. For me, this really just captured, like, you know, uh, the feeling of reading the original comic book series when I was a kid. Uh, just all the twists and turns and just how unpredictable things, like, end up getting. We kick off this episode with where we met Star-Lord for the first time in the MCU, stealing the orb that contains the Power Stone. However, this time, it's not Peter Quill under the mask, it's none other than T'Challa, and unlike with Quill, Korath and the rest of the space side of Marvel just know exactly who Star-Lord is, as T'Challa has accomplished feats that Peter probably could have never dreamed of. Yeah, he's pretty much like an intergalactic rock star. Like, where, like, no one knew who the hell Peter was, you know, even though he wanted that, like, street cred. <laughs> like, T'Challa does not have that problem at all. Korath this time around really melts like a pure fanboy at just the sight of Star-Lord, but still chooses to attempt to fight him even while taking pointers from T'Challa, um, if I may add, because he fears Ronan the Accuser. After defeating Korath and ultimately deciding to have him join the Ravagers, we catch up with Yondu, who you know helps take out the remaining guards, and we get a moment to see another stark difference between Peter and T'Challa. For Peter, this mission was you know fueled by greed as he had planned to sell the fancy orb, but T'Challa, as we find out, is known far and wide for bringing aid to people no matter where he goes, and so looks to restart a dying star with you know the power of the Power Stone to save an entire civilization. It's actions like these that you know have made him the space Robin Hood and really honor the T'Challa we know from the timeline, as he wanted nothing more than to you know actually help the world. Another like contrast that was glaring to me uh, you know, between Peter and T'Challa was uh, T'Challa's relationship with Yandu here. Because, you know, while in Guardians, obviously, they're still close and, you know, Yandu's his father figure. In that original Guardians film, there was a lot of tension between the two and they definitely did not get along. Here, there's kind of this warm, you know, father-son relationship happening. This is when we get our origin for, you know, the Wakandan Star-Lord. You know, we see that from a young age, T'Challa wanted nothing more than to explore and see the world, but ultimately gets discouraged by his father. But, you know, as the Watcher informs us, anything can happen, whether you're in the wrong place or the right one at the right time. As when young T'Challa steps outside the borders of Wakanda, he is met by the Ravagers, Taserface, and Kraglin, who mistakenly thought he was Peter Quill because, as I quote, all humans look alike. Plus, they picked up on a non-earthly element coming from the area and figured this had to be the place. After all, they were there to pick up the spawn of Ego, the living planet. And I'm sure this is partially due to their equipment just picking up all the, you know, vibranium readings. Because, I mean, right? Wakanda's like on top of a vibranium mind? Yeah, I always forget that it came from like a comet, you know, that came down mm -hmm. or an asteroid, I should say. Yeah, so I'm sure their equipment's probably, you know, going off the grid, you know, just being mm. there. So so I guess I could kind of understand the confusion. Nah, they're in a the completely wrong area. <laughs> <laughs> it was good to get like more of a role for Taserface. Yes. Right? 
Uh, I think all the characters throughout this were pretty funny in this episode. Yeah, yeah. He definitely felt more likable. Uh, and I think that's probably just the T'Challa effect on everyone. Back in present day, we see T'Challa and the Ravagers hitting up a quite fancy space club where Korath begins reciting all the major accomplishments of, you know, this version of Star-Lord. During this moment, we get the biggest revelation of them all that while out in his adventures, T'Challa met with and was able to use diplomacy to change the mind of the mad Titan Thanos, which also in turn led to saving Drax's homeworld as Thanos never came to kill half of its population, as we then learn from a now bartender version of Drax who asked for a selfie from T'Challa. Now, obviously, they didn't have Dave Batista, uh, you know, doing the voice for, you know, Drax here. And this is the first time, you know, in the series that it really like threw me for a loop. It was like, that's not Drax. Um, but apparently, <laughs> Batista claims that they didn't even ask him which seems oh, strange. Okay. So um, I don't know if that's some kind of oversight or just BS on his part. But yeah, because like, why wouldn't you? But as far as like T'Challa talking Thanos out of his like grand mission in life, like his reason for being, I thought it was a bit of a stretch just knowing like the traumatic horrors that Thanos like went through as a child to, you know, make him the way he is and, you know, believe mm -hmm. the things he believes. So I totally thought they were gonna spoof that popular like argument against Thanos, like that meme going around, like why wouldn't you just double the fucking resources, dummy? You know, so, <laughs> <laughs> but I feel like that'd just be a little too meta for them. Uh, but yeah, no, uh -huh. it was definitely cool to see like, you know, good guy Thanos running around though with the Ravengers. I will say that. I just think even if you were able to talk him out of snapping away half the universe for resource reasons, I think he would still be out there doing something to create resources for people or doing something other than being with the Ravagers. I don't imagine him actually joining up with that team. Well, maybe <laughs> if he believes in T'Challa's mission statement, because he, like you said, he's basically, you know, the you know galaxy's Robin Hood, where he's trying True. to bring resources and make a better galaxy for everyone. Um, I could see him joining up, I guess. Because I do feel like he'd come up with a grander, like, plan with T'Challa, you know, to help out the entire galaxy, then doing these little, like, side missions and helping, you know, planets here and there. Um, it just feels a little too small for Thanos, because we know he's, like, a master strategist. Yeah. <laughs> I still feel like maybe he would go after the Gauntlet still, if it's still a thing here in this universe. Because if you think mm. about it, then he could use it to help everyone if he really wanted to use it that way. And it's really no different than what T'Challa is doing by stealing these little trinkets that, you know, that are super powerful to help out worlds. Yeah, I mean, it could be an instant way to save and help everyone, but I just, mm. I don't know. I mean, he could have thought of that in the it first place. It goes back to the meme. Yeah. It goes back to the fucking meme. <laughs> <laughs> just double the resources. <laughs> nah, Thanos had it right. All right. Uh -huh. <laughs> you sick fuck. I mean, he does definitely still have genocide on his mind, though, because he literally brings it up to every new person that he meets, uh -huh. you know, throughout this episode. So I believe one of the characters calls him like Captain Genocide. So I, I don't know. I, I feel like his his hero turn isn't going to last very long <laughs> in this universe. 
While at this bar, Nebula, with a full head of hair and a sultry deposition, brings a fresh score to the Ravager's crew. Nebula is looking to enlist the gang in stealing the Embers of Genesis, which is a seed-like plant capable of terraforming an entire planet in mere moments. This being currently in the hands of the Collector, who they regarded as the biggest crime lord in the galaxy. So yeah, they definitely leveled up the Collector here in this episode. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just comparatively speaking. And with like Nebula and like Thanos being such a big part of this episode, I was really surprised that we didn't get any kind of like reference to Gamora. Mm, that's a good point. I didn't notice. No Gamora right? like, at all. They didn't bring her up or, you know, not just even in like a side comment. I mean, especially since we do know that she makes an appearance at some point during the series. So I guess just not in this episode. We kick right into their plan as they go, you know, Trojan horse style as they present an item to be bought by the collector on the mining colony of nowhere. Using the Ravager gang as a distraction, causing a fight outside that alerts the collector's new guards, the Black Order, who, you know, previously worked for Thanos. T'Challa makes his way in through the collector's massive collection filled with an Easter egg from just about every single Marvel film. Yeah, I wasn't expecting to see the Black Order here, but it was cool to see Thanos eventually like go up up against his former henchmen. I'm surprised that they weren't show, showing more like loyalty since they were such acolytes like in the purest sense of the word in the films. Even though he had such a drastic like philosophical like shift. Um, I don't know. I just kind of would have expected them to still follow him. I don't know if I could follow my boss after he's, you know, physically dragged me from planet to planet, killing half of like a civilization every time. And then out of nowhere, he's like, hey, fuck it. We're going to save everyone now. I, I don't know. I don't think I can keep following that guy. <laughs> he's so wishy-washy. <laughs> yeah, he is kind of a flake here, right? <laughs> that is a drastic shift. Um, but at least it was for the good. So uh -huh. I don't know. <laughs> Because it's like, I just slaughtered millions for you, and now you're like, just like, oopsie-daisy. Like, my bad. Billions, like, even. <laughs> because here, it feels like they're just kind of following the power, and now they're just minions of the Collector, where, I don't know, it felt like their devotion to Thanos was almost religious-like, mm -hmm. you know, in the films. And of course, amongst this collection is none other than Howard the Duck, sipping on a cocktail and sitting on all the right directions T'Challa needs to get to the Embers. T'Challa decides to free Howard as he deems it easier than, you know, actually memorizing the directions he just gave. So one of the things I definitely got out of this episode was the MCU needs more Howard the Duck. So I'm hoping that he pops up here and there, like throughout the What If series at least. Now, a while back, he was supposed to get his own Hulu series, like it was animated with uh, Kevin yeah. Smith, like helming it. I don't know if you remember that. Yeah, I was thinking about that when we saw him in here. I was like, wasn't he supposed to get his own show? But I don't know. Yeah, no, but uh, Foggy actually put a stop to that after he got control of like Marvel TV and everything else that they had going on at that time just kind of went wayward. Uh, so, I don't know, maybe, you know, he has plans for Howard? Perhaps. I could see a raunchy show coming to Disney Plus if they wanted to do that. I don't know about Disney Plus. I could see them putting it back on Hulu. <laughs> yeah, along <laughs> with, like, the Modoc show. Like, yeah, I don't think they go. Yeah, because Modoc was the one show that actually was announced at the same time as Howard mm -hmm. that somehow made it through. So, I guess maybe he didn't have big plans for Modoc, which... I understand <laughs> <laughs> that show's supposed to be fantastic i want to check oh, yeah, it out I heard good things 
because um, if you remember too, like Hulu was also going to have like a Ghost Rider solo series, and then Faki put a stop to that because apparently he has plans for the character. Mm-hmm. Speaking of which, what happened to that Hellstrom show that like came out? I think it just sucked. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> we were going to review it for the show, and like I got like halfway through the first episode, I was like, no, thank you. Jeez. Oh, <laughs> Meanwhile, Proxima Midnight discovers that the commotion outside was all a diversion leading to an immediate lockdown of the facility. T'Challa quickly attempts an escape as soon as the doors begin locking. This ends up putting him in a hangar bay collection of ships. Again, we get a ton of Easter eggs here as we see ships like the Milano, Ant-Man's Quantum Bubble, and plenty more. Some are even saying that they see an X-Wing in there, but I, I don't know. What, what I've seen in the picture, it doesn't look enough like an X-Wing, and I feel like they would want to make that a little bit more prominent since they're both owned by the same company. Well, that would be ridiculously huge if there was an X-Wing. <laughs> you know, that, exactly. that'd be the first, like, Marvel Star Wars crossover. So there's no way there's an X-Wing in there. I'll have to go back and look, but, no, that would be making headlines one of the, like, everywhere. <laughs> But this pretty much establishes the Collector as the big bad of, you know, the MCU here. Mm -hmm. At least in this, like, you know, alternate reality. The fact that he has all these, like, huge trophies laying around tells you that he's, like, a true fucking powerhouse. Because, yeah, comparatively speaking, like, his trophy room feels, like, a hundred times bigger, you know, in this episode compared to what we saw in the films. But anyway, T'Challa's necklace during this scene begins to glow as he makes his way past the ships. It seems like a Wakandan spacecraft actually activated a homing beacon within his necklace, and as T'Challa explores the ship, he finds a message from his father. This rocks T'Challa's world, as he was made to believe by Yondu that his home of Wakanda had been destroyed back during a time when T'Challa had you know, thought about going home. But it seems the very opposite has actually occurred here. In T'Challa's missing state, his family advanced its space program far enough as a way to you know send out beacons to him all across the galaxy yeah this is a pretty like huge betrayal mm -hmm. <laughs> so i was kind of surprised in this episode that like t'challa's anger didn't last that long that he's able to kind of forgive yandu like in a matter of i don't know minutes like i understand you only have you know 30 minutes to tell your story here so, but I don't know, it, it, he felt just a little too forgiving uh, towards a man who literally robbed him of like decades with his family. Because even if he like chose to like continue like, you know, exploring the galaxy with the, you know, Ravagers, at least he could go back and visit with his family. Yeah. <laughs> right? And if you think about it, like this entire time, like he's thought his family is dead. I mean, it's pretty fucking messed up, man. No, yeah, I, I agree with you, but I think the limitations of a 30-minute cartoon... I know, I know, I get it. <laughs> you still got a heist going on, man. Yeah, no, you're right. <laughs> I'm nitpicking, I guess. Next, in what seems like a classic heist double-cross, Nebula leads the Collector in capturing T'Challa. While in a holding cell with the Ravagers, T'Challa explodes on Yondu, you know, for not actually telling him the truth about his home. Yandu pleads with T'Challa, explaining he belonged with the Ravagers as they had you know, become family. But lost in the lie that Yandu told, T'Challa disowns them before getting knocked out by one of the Black Order to be brought before the Collector. Yeah, once again, like his reaction completely makes sense, and I just probably needed more of that. But mm -hmm. It's okay. <laughs> like you said, it's 30 minutes. 
Standing in one of the collector's pods, T'Challa spars with words this time around with the collector in front of his servant and slave, Karina. All the while, Nebula returns to the Ravagers and frees them in what turns out to be a triple cross because that's how you do a heist. And apparently this was, you know, the secret plan Nebula had with T'Challa from the get-go. Um, while the Ravagers were getting locked up, Nebula snuck around and stole the actual embers. T'Challa using his necklace actually breaks through the glass of his container and ends up getting caught by Ebony Ma. And when you think T'Challa is screwed, Karina shoots Ebony Ma in the back, having actually liked what T'Challa had said earlier against enslavement while arguing with the Collector. Plus, it had been mentioned earlier on in the show that T'Challa actually saved her homeworld. Though I'm not sure if she knows that or not during the scene. I thought this was a cool moment and just went a long way, you know, showing like how inspiring T'Challa is, you know, as a man and how one person can like make a big difference. After escaping Ebony Maw, T'Challa ultimately gets into a confrontation with the Collector, who shows off a myriad of weapons here. From Cap's shield to Hela's necro-sword helmet, T'Challa is again in a near-impossible fight. And in another unexpected moment, while the Ravagers are off somewhere else escaping, Thanos decides to pull a hero move here and stay behind to protect his brothers in arms. Thanos is forced to fight his former guard, the Black Order, and the Black Order actually seemed to have him on the ropes, which was surprising for me, as even without the gauntlet, Thanos is pretty powerful as we've seen. No, I agree 100%. Like, Thanos didn't even break a sweat, like, taking out the Hulk. So the fact that he even struggled with the Black Order, just, I don't know, didn't feel like it rang true to me. So, but mm. maybe this is more of a powered down version, you know, of the character, or they just needed to nerf him to, like, you know, <laughs> get this big dramatic moment which is probably more of the case. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, back to the collector. I mean, what the hell did he do to get Hela's helmet? I don't know, I mean, know, this is man. a character that was so fucking powerful that Thor had to set off Ragnarok just uh -huh. to escape the planet <laughs> and save his people. You know, that didn't even, I don't think, really killed her. It's just like, she's there right now. She's like trapped there. So like I was uh -huh. saying before, like the collector's the true badass of the MCU here. Just when you think T'Challa is going to be down and out, he gets aid again from Yondu. Very similarly, Nebula comes to the aid of Thanos before he gets executed by Proxima Midnight. Nebula actually uses the embers during this fight to wipe out um, Cull Obsidian as the plant immediately grows inside him and you know starts changing all of nowhere. Yandu and T'Challa continue to have a hard time with the Collector. Knowing they have to get the Collector's gauntlet off so that he can no longer use his arsenal, they go with a plan called Sticky Figures, which kind of reminds me personally a lot of the plan to remove Thanos' gauntlet minus Mantis, of course. Um, T'Challa, with a flying knee strike, knocks the Collector into one of his pods before handing over the control gauntlet to none other than Karina. Uh, yeah, this was totally a V-trigger, man. Yeah. <laughs> Am I wrong? Someone in uh, the animation department must be a Omega fan. Yeah, all I was missing was Excalibur just screaming at the top of his lungs. That would have been right. a great moment. <laughs> but anyway, I thought this was a cool way for the collector to like meet his demise. You know, him being overtaken by all of his trophies, basically. Making their official getaway using the Wakandan ship that T'Challa had found earlier, him and the Ravagers actually end up meeting up again and plotting a course to Wakanda, reuniting T'Challa with his father and family. This actually leads to a ton of fun moments between the Ravagers and the Wakandans. But the show actually ultimately ends with an update on what happened with Peter Quill, as he gets reunited with his dear old dad 
Ego, the living planet. Yeah, I'm wondering if this is a story that they're going to explore, like, maybe in the second season. Because it feels like, I don't know, it just felt like a weird way to end the episode to me. I mean, I'm still personally waiting to see if there's going to be a through line in this season at all. Like, I'm wondering if one of these what ifs act like out of nowhere turns into a storyline for all of them. I'm guessing that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's going to happen. I don't know if it's going to involve this story thread, though, because um, we know that there is going to be a second season at this point. So mm-hmm. it feels like they might go back and kind of like touch on different things they introduced in these episodes. So but I guess we'll just have to wait and see. But overall, really fun episode. It was great hearing Chadwick again. I know we have a couple more episodes with him voice acting on. So that's just nice to know. And to go back to what you originally were saying, like in the beginning of the breakdown, I'm hoping we get more episodes like this where we get like these huge like deviations from the original timeline, because that's what makes this concept so fun. It's just seeing like all these crazy, you know, alterations to some of our favorite characters. I mean, exactly. I, th- I couldn't possibly imagine ever seeing a, a good guy Thanos, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, in my mind, in every universe, he is evil in some form or fashion. <laughs> <laughs> it's the one constant. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, join us next week for episode three, where we discuss what happens when Loki rules Earth. Attention listeners across the galaxy, all the way from Australia to Houston, do we have a pew problem? If so, our friends at Manscaped have cleared you for takeoff with their fourth generation and brand new lawnmower 4.0. Blast your pew to the next planet with the performance package 4.0. The orbits in your pants will feel like you're in zero gravity when you use the best tools for the job from the leaders in male grooming. Join the 2 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped and get your rocket ready for takeoff by going to manscaped.com for 20% off plus free shipping with our code AMAZING. Christian, I'm a hairy bastard, and one day my wife said enough's enough and got me my very own Manscaped lawnmower. I went from being a Wookiee to being as smooth as Lando. So you know my Bad Batch was more than ready for the next mission when I got my lawnmower 4.0. Ready for an out-of-world experience, fellas? Look no further than the Performance Package 4.0 from Manscaped that has just taken off in not only the US, but Canada, the UK, across Europe, Australia, South Africa, and Singapore. Inside this package, you'll find their Lawnmower 4.0 trimmer, weed whacker, ear and nose hair trimmer, crop preserver ball deodorant, Crop Reviver Toner, Performance Boxer Briefs, and a travel bag to hold your whole solar system. First scheduled for liftoff, new Lawnmower 4.0 trimmer. This spaceship is here to guide you on a journey to trim your body, balls, butt, and even your anus. This fourth generation trimmer also features a cutting edge ceramic blade to reduce grooming accidents thanks to their advanced skin safe technology. The Lawnmower 4.0 has a 7,000 RPM motor, a new multifunction on-off switch, can engage a travel lock, and is even waterproof. The Lawnmower 4.0 also has a 4000K LED spotlight you can turn on and off when needed for a more precise shave throughout your travels across the universe. The Performance Package 4.0 also includes the Weed Whacker. It's like having a little astronaut to chop your worst weeds in your nose and ears. The Weed Whacker is also waterproof and uses a 9000 
RPM motor powered 360 degree rotary dual blade system. This nose and ear hair trimmer provides skin safe technology, which helps prevent nicks, snags, and tugs in those delicate holes. Don't forget to use the Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant and the Crop Reviver to help your little planets be on their A game while feeling the sun's heat. Manscaped even threw in two free gifts to their Performance Package 4.0, the Manscaped Boxers and the Shed Travel Bag. Abort Harry Balls and Buzz Lightyear that Woody with Manscaped. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use our code AMAZING, that's A-M-A-Z-I-N-G to unlock your confidence and always use the right tools for the job with Manscaped. So Christian, you got a film review for us. That's right, I saw Don't Breathe 2. Warning spoiler alert, spoilers for Don't Breathe 2 ahead. You have been warned. And now, our feature presentation. Get the girl! It's not me you need to be scared of, little girl. But the man standing next to you. Now, I don't know who he is, but I know who he's not. Should I tell her or you? A blind veteran must use his military training to save a young orphan from a group of thugs who break into his home. Film is directed by Rodo Siegis and stars Stephen Lang. Hey listeners, you remember that horror movie where a blind man was forcibly inseminating a woman uh, so that he could, you know, replace his dead daughter? That guy is now somehow a hero in the Don't Breathe franchise, and as hard as it may be to, like, imagine a murder machine rapist kidnapper playing a more violent version of Batman, that is what Fede Alvarez and director Roto Sayegas um, present us. To be honest, I was a pretty big fan of the first film, but as soon as I saw, you know, the trailer for its sequel, I was completely thrown off by our evil blind man now raising a kid of his own. But even so, I was still kind of interested in the concept. While this film doesn't necessarily want you to forget or forgive Stephen Lang's blind man, it has a hard time at making me, the viewer, side with him over our new antagonist. That's not without effort though from our writers, you know. We get introduced to this little girl's and her vile meth head gangster parents that were, you know, actually willing to sacrifice their own kid to be able to continue making meth. Um, to sum it up, the little girl's mother kind of fucked up her heart in a meth lab explosion and well, the only person compatible is her own daughter, who they lost that day of the fire. And while the average mom would, you know, give up their own life to protect their child, this one desperately wants to get back to making that sweet crack. Now you're probably wondering, well, at least the old blind man saved this girl from her terrible parents. But honestly, all that happened was he found a little girl on the street and then kidnapped her for his own need for a daughter. So really in the end, you just have two sides of bad people that you really can't sympathize for and they're just fighting over who gets to ruin this kid's life more. But you know, dumb story aside, I'm afraid this film still betrays a lot of what brought it to the dance in the first place because it lacks the tension and horror of the first one. Almost every kill was given away in the trailer and the build up to these moments were fairly, you know, bog standard. Sound design, which was such an important part of that first film, where it's just kind of left on the floor here. You know, it's just filled with ambient sound and music in the background at all times. There's no real like moments that you get to like feel the tension of the blind man approaching someone. And the kills themselves weren't even that interesting. You know, even thinking back on it, 
they were very toned down in comparison to the first film. And I could have easily seen this movie getting a PG-13 rating. You know, you don't get to see any crazy effects or anything like that because there's barely any blood. There's barely any, you know, need for like a piercing, you know, effect or anything like that. It's very lackluster in the kill department. But, you know, where it lacked in that and where it lacked in, you know, its sound design, the director did have plenty of fun ideals when it came to using the camera. I mean, there's plenty of tracking shots and interesting camera angles at times. Uh, Madeline Grace, who plays Phoenix, the little girl, gets a great sequence where she's actually going through the house and using everything that the blind man has taught her to really, you know, navigate through these kidnappers. All the while, the camera continues to follow her through the house, and it was very well put together. I mean, I believe on paper that there, you know, is an interesting premise with this film, and, you know, Stephen Lang still makes for a great evil blind man, but the redemption arc for this just doesn't work, and unfortunately for the film as a whole, um, while it may have had some good ideals at times, simply does not live up to its predecessor. So for Don't Breathe 2, I'm going to give it a D+. All right, Damon, this was the grand finale well, of the Bad Bats. I mean, part two of the grand finale, really. Okay, okay, part two of the grand finale <laughs> of the Bad Bats. And we're talking it now with Camino Lost. Warning, spoiler alert. Spoilers for the Bad Batch finale ahead. You have been warned. You know, if it wasn't for you, we wouldn't be in this mess. Something on your tiny mind, Rekka. All that time. You didn't even try to come back. We still would have taken you. Let it go, Wrecker. Crosshair has always been severe and unyielding. It is his nature. You cannot change that. He cannot change that. So while I really enjoyed last week's episode, I've got to say this week's show felt a little anticlimactic to me. I mean, with most of the main story and drama like out of the way with part one of the finale last week, this week's show was more about the action as we witnessed the Batch and Crosshair try to make it off of Camino alive. If you listen to last week's podcast, you know we kind of saw this coming, but I guess I was kind of hoping this week's episode would leave us with a little tease of things to come in the second season. Instead, I felt like it just kind of reset us back to the status quo. And yes, I'm probably being a little greedy, and the destruction of Kamino is a big deal, but we already knew that was happening with part one in the finale. So honestly, I think it would have just resonated more if this wasn't divided into two parts. Uh, Christian, what was your thoughts on the episode? Yeah, I have to agree. If this wasn't split up into two parts, this would probably feel a lot better. And I definitely think I expected a little bit more of a, I don't know, an epilogue, because we had a lot of events happen throughout this season. And we've met a lot of characters over the time. You know, they could have showed off, like, even, you know, what Sid's up to at this point oh, in this God, episode, no. just to give a little bit... <laughs> <laughs> a little you, bit more finality to it. <laughs> gives a fuck what Sid's doing. <laughs> but I'm just what saying, we were introduced Sid's to all doing. this stuff going on. Not like fucking like Cad Bane or anything, Sid, huh? <laughs> well, you know I'm going to complain about that later anyway, that we didn't see anything of Cad yeah. Bane. We just got what Nala say walking off somewhere. Yeah. But I mean, we'll get into it when we get into yeah. it. <laughs> so while the wreckage of what's left of the city begins to sink into the ocean, the Empire decides to depart as the Bad Batch is left trying to escape the city before it fully sinks. 
Here we see that Rampart actually had the clones carry out his orders and destroy the city, which is pretty messed up when you think about it. One of the clones is actually pretty affected by this, and why wouldn't he be? You know, he just destroyed his home. <laughs> so, um, I don't know. Maybe this leads to a clone uprising in the second season, especially now that we've established that the clones are starting to regain their free will. But I guess we're going to have to wait a year to find out. Rampart should have no time for weakness. It should have shot him around the spot so as, as soon as he heard the shakiness in his voice uh -huh, right that's the tarkin way right it is the tarkin <laughs> way <laughs> but yes it was nice seeing that you know these clones do feel some attachment to their you know their their home in some sort of way especially after being stripped of it at this point yeah, and it seems like more and more of them are starting to, like, snap out of Order 66. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, maybe that's a story that continues on the second season. I just think after the episodes with Captain Hauser and everything and him able to, like, take a stand against the Empire, I was expecting to see more of that play out. So, mm. I don't know. I, I, it's a little disappointing that we didn't get more of that aspect. So Omega and AZ end up having to save Crosshair when they get trapped in this flooded room. Uh, it makes sense for Omega's character at this point. It's what they've established. She just has a huge heart that just refuses not to help pretty much anyone. Um, we'll just see like how long this extreme compassion can possibly last, especially when I feel like in the second season, like everyone in the galaxy is going to be gunning for them. Yeah, I am hoping um, in the second season that we might see her harden just a little bit from all the things that she's been through. Because I mean, <laughs> I love that both it's... of us are like, we must break her. <laughs> <laughs> this humanity. It gets to a point where it's just like you can't save it's, every yeah. single person. It's though. a bit much. And they're just hitting us over the head with it. Uh -huh. Episode after episode. It's like, I get it. I get it. <laughs> she's got a huge heart. But. Yeah, eventually something's gonna have to lead to her, what, like you said, like getting a hardened edge. Um, just, you know, for survival reasons. So during this escape, Crosshair definitely makes a couple cracks about the team taking orders from a child, and that's the reason why they're in the situation that they're in. The team and Crosshair go back and forth a couple times like this. Both sides obviously still feel very betrayed by the other, but they don't really have much time to bicker because if they don't get to the surface soon, they're all gonna die. So in the previous episode, we got a little bit more like discourse between the two groups, why they're you know on each other's sides like this. This episode felt just like they kept repeating themselves over and over again. And it, I, I don't know. I didn't like how they, you know, Crosshair's kind of reactions to each thing just felt very childish mm -hmm. during this scenario, where it didn't feel like their argument was building or growing throughout the episode, which I think just would have been better for the structure of the tension going on with, you know, their, their current situation. No, I agree. I agree. And once again, I think it's more of uh, the fact that it's a two-part episode, really. Like this should have mm -hmm. just been combined into, a, you know, an hour long special. And I feel like it would have just been fine. But since like it's divided to two parts, it makes it more glaring, you mm -hmm. know? Um, but yeah, no, I agree. So while they're trying to figure out the best way out of the wreckage, they end up back in the lab where they were created again. And here they kind of retell the story, but this time with Crosshair listening, that Omega was actually there during their creation. My guess was this was kind of done to chip away at, you know, the way Crosshair perceives Omega. And Omega even has a line here that, you know, talks about how she was alone until the Bad Batch came into her life. 
So once the wreckage settles on the ocean floor, the group makes their way to the tube that leads to their ship. Uh, along the way here, at some point, they come across this giant turtle thing that, I don't know, I feel like I've seen before, but I can't put my finger on it. But anyway, uh, they find out that it's damaged, and AZ suggests that he has to guide them to the surface inside the lab capsules. But while he's doing this, he ends up losing power. So then Omega tries to save him at the risk of drowning herself. That is, until Crosshair, to the surprise of everyone, saves both of them. Now, I'll tell you, when Crosshair pulled out his rifle, I totally thought he was gonna, like, shoot and destroy AZ, forcing, like, Omega to, like, swim to safety and teaching her this, like, hard life lesson, but that wasn't the case. It really seemed to be Crosshair's way of paying back Omega for saving him earlier. Um, I did appreciate, like, the Batch all keeping their guns drawn on him while, like, he had his rifle. Just not fully trusting him because, like, why would you? But overall, this was a nice moment and probably the first possible steps towards Crosshair's redemption. Re redemption aside and all, there's so many moments in this little part where, like, you know, the entire structure of Kamino has come down on top of this tube, right? And then AZ's like, hey... Let me just cut a hole real quick into this tunnel, which first I'm like, that's not safe at all. And that's not how that would work. It wouldn't <laughs> there wouldn't just perfectly be this hole set into this fucking tube. Um, then then this whole plan of sitting in like air coffins, pretty much to the to get to this to the top. I don't know. I'd rather shoot myself than be stuck in that little capsule going up the water. There's no way one droid barely having enough power n nonetheless would be able to guide four different like t tubes to the fucking surface. Christian, you have no clue how much like a low power droid could possibly do, my friends. <laughs> he was passing out uh -huh. before they even went out. I mean, it's either that or just die in the ocean. So, I mean, you might like as well I said, chance I'd it. I just shoot myself. <laughs> well, that would be a dark end to this fucking series, don't you think? <laughs> I guess. So when we reach the ship, the Bad Batch do try to give Crosshair another chance to rejoin the team, but Crosshair ends up turning them down again, uh, probably in hopes of rejoining the Empire. Uh, I just wonder how he's going to react uh, since they probably don't want him back at this point, seeing that they think that he possibly betrayed them. This was definitely a pretty somber way to end the season. We do get one final shot of Nalase being brought to like an Imperial facility. Here she's greeted by another scientist who might possibly be a cloner themselves uh, since they're wearing a very similar uniform to the scientist who's working on Baby Yoda and the Mandalorian. And that's how the season ends. But I think what you mentioned right there with Crosshair not necessarily being you know, reaccepted by the Empire. Maybe that's what we get with our second season. We have, you know, Omega kind of getting smacked with the reality of she can't save everyone. She can't be the pure hearted person she is. And we have Crosshair getting smacked by the reality of his goals of, you know, this perfect Empire. You know, maybe that's the journey we'll see throughout this second season. Uh, I doubt it, but, you know, I feel like that's you know, might be I a big part, portion that, of what we can though. get. I could see Like, there's parallels there. I'm curious to see, like, how Crosshair would react if the Empire doesn't take him back, because, you know, will that make him an even darker character? Like, you know, since he not only lost his family with the Bad Batch, but now he kind of lost his whole reason for being with the Empire. It's going to take him down a dark path, man. He's going to be doing death sticks and uh, <laughs> selling spice for the, the pikes and... 
those fucking pikes. <laughs> <laughs> We're definitely going to see more of them next season. Oh, yeah. If if anything, it'll be a nice side episode to completely distract us from the main uh, you know, story. I'm line. hoping that we see like the Crimson Dawn show up. You know, I think I think, I think they kind of yeah. like, you know, laid the groundwork for that happening. Mm-hmm. So um, I, there's a lot of positives that I think could spin out of this season and a lot of different avenues that they can explore um, that, you know, keeps me excited for the series overall. Um, I definitely feel like there is huge pacing issues, though, um, that kind of dragged the series down in the long run. Um, mm-hmm. You know, just way, way too many side missions with Sid. Um, if they would have just stuck with the main narrative and everything, and I just wish we got more moments where we got to witness like this transition of power take place with the Empire. Because when we did see that, that's when the series really shined. So hopefully the second season leans more into like that. It all just kind of makes me wonder, you know, how big of a plan they have for the Bad Batch going forward. Because this this season for me just felt too much like a introduction to where we want to go now from here. You know, it's like, okay, we got, you know, we had the Clone Wars. Now this is the Bad Batch kind of introducing us into the next chapter of, you know, Filoni's version of Star Wars. And I'm wondering, like, okay, if they have a bunch of seasons planned, this will definitely feel great as an introduction to those, you know, bigger story plots that they might go into in a second season, a third season or a fourth season. But, you know, this is as itself almost just feels too much like a a prologue because <laughs> there's just so many things introduced and nothing that really you know has any type of finality throughout the entire season yeah and i'm, I'm guessing because i mean we were speculating whether or not this season was going to be kind of a one and done type deal because they didn't announce mm-hmm. the second season yet um but you would have to think that the writers would be you know writing this as you know just the first season of many I'm sure we've only scratched the surface story-wise, like where they want to go and take the series. Because mm-hmm. it really just seems like the Bad Batch is just a vehicle to explore, you know, this, you know, transition from the, you know, Republic to the Empire. I just don't want any more fucking Sid episodes. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they're getting more. Oh my God. Absolutely. They're going to go right back <laughs> to that planet and, you know, hanging out at that bar again and... I mean, they did leave Gregor with Sid, so you're guaranteed to see her. <laughs> I'm sure we're going to see her. I'm just hoping we don't get as much of her this, you know, next coming uh-huh. season. I'm really hoping that we get to spend more time with, like, Rex and maybe even, like, catch up with, like, Cody. Because I don't think Filoni's ever touched upon, like, what happens to Cody after Order 66. I think the Legends-like books might have explored that a little but since those aren't canon, it, it's kind of wide open. I mean, we've back, we've gone back and forth speculating if uh, Cody will show up in the Obi-Wan series as well. So, I mean, yeah, it'd, it'd be interesting to see where he's going to be in all of this. <laughs> no, that's right. That is a big rumor. So, and hopefully that's true because I'd love to see it. With Nala Se now being in the hands of the Empire, do you think, you know, she'll be helping out with whatever uh, Palpatine's plans were? Yeah. Are we going to see an early version yeah, of it? I mean, I don't think we'll see a version of it on this show. <laughs> You know, uh, but I'm sure that's what they're kind of hinting at here, you know, right? Because, like, he already had that plan in place, at least in the Legends books, right? Where he was already kind of experimenting with cloning oh, yeah. in case, right? <laughs> so, I mean, I'm sure that's what they're hinting at. All right, Christian, so the time has come. What grade do you give the first season of The Bad Batch? 
You know, the show started off with a bang. You know, I, I almost forget that we saw like Kanan, you know, go through what he did at the beginning of the series. Um, just, but as you said, you know, there was tons of pacing issues. We got a lot of episodes that just kind of just felt either out of place or just derailed the storyline a little bit too much. Um, I feel like I'm comfortable dropping this to just a B. And I just think it's mostly, I think it would have been better if we had gotten something a little bit more substantial for a ending of this series than we had gotten. No, I agree. And I think for that reason, I'm going to go ahead and give the first season a B minus. And I think it's, I mean, I don't know, the finale just really felt flat to me. Um, and it didn't like give me enough to look forward to for the second season. Like I can, you know, sit here with you and go back and forth and, you know, come up with reasons to be excited for the second <laughs> season, but it like, I'm doing the work for it. If you know what mm. I mean, like if that makes any sense, um, no, you know, like they didn't give me a glimpse of anything to really like look forward to, except like I said, like it just kind of resets and goes back to status quo. And I don't know, at this point, I was just getting kind of exhausted with it. Like, like, God forbid they start off like with Sid again, like <laughs> the first episode, <laughs> like running missions for her. I just I don't know if I can handle that. So the season as a whole just felt like a real mixed bag to me. I mean, we had episodes that were great and like really went a long way in like deepening like the Star Wars mythos. And then we had like other episodes that just felt like they were there. So hopefully next season, we kind of like trim the fat and just make every episode feel important. Well, now it's time for Christian's Corner. Not too long ago, we talked about early adopters for Back for Blood's closed beta. Well, last weekend, the open beta went live and me and my friends got a chance to hop around in it. The experience really gave me a feeling of playing a hybrid between Call of Duty Zombies and Left 4 Dead, which, you know, this game is a spiritual successor of. Both of those titles are known for their, you know, addictive and fun gameplay mechanics, and I think that can easily describe what it was like to play Back for Blood. The new card system brought, you know, kind of difficult challenges right as I was, you know, starting to think that the gameplay was might be a little too easy at times. You know, just when I was thinking that, oh, we get this super hard card where we all need to survive and make it to the end, otherwise we all fail. And I think there's a chance that there's going to be more cards like that or even more challenges um, in the future with the main release. And speaking of that, I'm not even sure I got the full grasp of how much these cards were affecting my play style as well, because I think the cards that they give you in this beta might have been, you know, more of the simpler, you know, basic cards where there might be, you know, something more um, exotic later on. I mean, I have to imagine that there's going to be a ton of variety um, that will help make this game even more replayable, even though I would say right now I could hop back into that at any time and play it with friends and still have a good time. So I would still say I'm highly considering this a day one purchase, and you can still see my playthrough that's up right now on Twitch. Um, next week, there's going to be Gamescom happening. So there's going to be a couple uh, press conferences going on. I'm still debating if I'm going to cover any of them, you know, live or if I'm just going to save them for the show, but we will make sure to be talking talking about what's going on at Gamescom next week here on the podcast. So definitely tune in for that. Other than that, make sure that you're checking us out on Twitch every Thursday through Sunday where I play the games that we talk about here on the show and play other games with friends and stuff like that. Uh, definitely make sure that you're following us and subscribe if you'd like for free using your Amazon Prime accounts. All right, now on to wrestling. It's looking like goofs. Our white knight and a white horse, Adam Page, calls himself a cowboy. 
Can't get over his high school drama, BTE emo bullcrap long enough to get the job done. He ain't no cowboy. I'd drink him under the table and beat his ass. Don't even get me started on Christian. I would walk through Christian's should have stayed retired ass like a wheat thresher. Don't forget, I'm the guy who carried the world championship on his back. I'm the guy who waved the flag for this company through dark days, through dark times, through empty buildings, through un uncertain times. All right, Christian, so let's go ahead and let's talk some AEW. Uh, but a little peek behind the curtain. This segment's going to be a little abbreviated because Christian's actually going to be attending uh, Rampage this week in Chicago. Uh, yes. So, But since Christian usually edits the episode on Fridays, he's not going to have tons of time. So uh, this has got to be a shorter episode. So it is what it is. But we did want to kind of just like touch on the debut episode of Rampage last week. Uh, and maybe a little like dynamite from this week. So Christian, what was your overall thoughts of the first episode of uh, Rampage? The length didn't really bother me too much. I definitely think they utilized the time well enough. I didn't feel like it was bogged down by too many commercials to make it seem like, you know, an hour flew by as compared to, I, I don't know, you know, going from those three hour episodes of Raw back in the Jesus day, and, which are still yeah. happening today, which I don't watch, yes. but, you know, <laughs> to a one hour show, I, I definitely felt like it was still well enough paced. So I definitely didn't think we lost too much here when um, you know, with a shorter version of AEW. I really enjoyed it. Like I thought the sh like the show being an hour long was actually kind of refreshing. It reminded mm. me of like NXT when it was only an hour long. Uh, just mm, the yeah. show moves and everything like mattered. Uh, I, I thought the opening match was perfect. You know between Omega and Christian, uh, you had the big upset happen. The crowd was so into it. I mean the crowd was just electric throughout the night. Uh, but the crowd really popped big after like a mixed kind of reaction that Christian got like the uh, dynamite previous. So I don't know. Mm -hmm. It was good to see. It, it felt like the perfect way to start off like this era of rampage, um, you know, with a big title win. And I feel like it went a long way to legitimize Christian as a top contender for that, you know, AEW title now at the pay-per-view. We had a really cool moment with Fuego, you know, finally earning his contract, which is an ongoing storyline that's been happening on Dark for the last, like, couple years. Uh, you know, it was a really cool moment. It seemed like a, a, an actual shoot where he didn't realize it was going to happen. So that's pretty cool and special when you have a moment like that. Um, I'm just loving this version of Rusev. Uh, he does uh -huh. such a great job of, like... Yeah, he squashes a lot of, like, you know, the people he faces, but he does it in a way that they don't lose anything by losing to him in a way. You know, he's still able to kind of put them over. He did something very similar to what he did with Pillman, where, like, on paper, it looked like it was going to be, like, a straight, like, squash match. But then, like, when the match is actually going on, the crowd actually got invested in Pillman and believed that he could pull out the win. And, you know, even in that loss, Pillman, you know, got elevated. And I felt like Fuego got the same treatment here. Uh, so, yeah, no, I'm just I'm loving this version of Rusev. And then it seems like he's going to be challenging Kingston next. But it's weird because he's the one laying out the challenge. <laughs> hmm. You don't typically see that, you know, from a champion, especially a heel champion. So I don't yeah, know. Yeah, but I, he's God's favorite. Champion. Yes, I'm. I'm digging right. this whole redeemer, you know, <laughs> character that he's got going on here. So uh -huh. I feel like that's going to be a really exciting match. Hopefully, it takes place on the uh, pay per view. You don't think they'll do it at the New York show or whatever show for Kingston? They might because he's from New York. You're saying. Mm-hmm. 
it feels kind of far out because that's what like mid-september yeah something like that and you don't have anything for rusev until then and he laid out the challenge so maybe i could see that but that that's also you're thinking like he's going to win Oh, no, I don't think Kingston's going to win. Yeah, so I don't know if they necessarily need to beat him in his hometown. You know what I'm saying? That feels like mm-hmm. a WWE thing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, like, I feel like they want him to have a big challenger for the pay-per-view. Because you do need that belt, I feel like, represented on the pay-per-view. Kingston's probably a good person for him to go against. Mm-hmm. And then you could have a rematch. And then for the main event, we had Britt Baker going up against, you know, Red Velvet. I really dug the story of this match for the most part. I liked how Red Velvet really focused on her wrist. At first, she was a little hesitant about it, but then she went all in on it. Uh, Anytime you could bring a real life situation into the ring and make it part of the story, just add stakes to the match. Uh, you know, and I, I, I thought they worked that well. What I am kind of like bumping up against is... Brit as a heel, like, you know, getting the reaction that she is. It just feels uh-huh. like they're going against the grain. It is a little weird, just optics wise, when they you go know, after the match, you know, it's like almost like a, a, a three on one situation, you know, with Red Velvet and the crowd is like standing on their feet, yeah. you know, <laughs> swinging the terrible towels over their fucking head. <laughs> I was laughing I was at like, the moment because it's just so ridiculous how over Britt Baker is. And they're doing this whole heel yeah. segment at this point. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they're in Pittsburgh, so it's even heightened. But uh-huh. still, like we saw that, you know, in the setup to this match, you know, she ends up attacking her with a crutch and the crowd standing on their feet cheering. It's just a little weird. Um, I don't know. Like, I feel like there's a way to kind of like stone cold her where she can be kind of this in-betweener character. She doesn't change her attitude necessarily. Just kind of tweak like, you know, moments like this. I, I don't know. And I appreciate like her still wanting to be a heel, but she's just so over. It just feels like she's fighting a losing battle mm. and it could end up hurting your baby faces in the long run because i guarantee you in chicago uh when she fights chris stantlander they're going to be 100 percent behind brett oh yeah so i mean not, not a question in my mind yeah and in the long run i feel like that is to the detriment of you know the baby faces once again i mean i think red velvet did a good job at points realizing you know she's not getting any sympathy from the crowd so she kind of it felt like she was almost pulling heel at certain points especially uh further on in the match but I don't know if Chris Statlander is going to be doing anything like that. Yeah, and the way she was working mm-hmm. the rest, 100%. Exactly. I agree. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, Britt has a new heater. What's her name, Christian? Jamie Hayter. Uh, okay. You probably don't was... recognize her anymore because she used to have, like, half-dyed hair. Yeah. And she was, right in the beginning of, like, AEW, she was part of the yeah. roster for a short period of time. Mm-hmm. Correct? Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, Cool. I mean, at least it's someone to handle all the physicality for Brit because we know Rebel just can't <laughs> at this mm-hmm. point. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I don't know. It, it is what it is. I mean, Brit's a fucking superstar. There's no denying that. Uh, I just, I wish they would just tweak the character a little. But overall, a great debut episode, you know, f- for a new show on Friday night. The ratings did really well. I mean, they were advertising the shit out of it, so don't expect uh-huh. it to stay at this level. I mean, I know this week with the impending, like, debut of CM Punk, 
this episode will probably surpass it. But uh-huh. after that, I think it'll probably come back down to Earth and, you know, hover around like the 500s, I'm guessing. Just because yeah, of the time slot, it is what it is. It's a Friday mm-hmm. at like, what, nine o'clock? So, I mean, you're kind of fighting a losing battle there. There aren't many like eyes on television sets at that point. So, um, the one thing I did want to like bring up was with this upcoming episode of Rampage, and when this podcast drops, that episode will already have happened, but. I felt like the card was a little lackluster. And I know that they keep on like preaching that this is just another A show, but I didn't feel like this was like an A like card, if that makes any mm-hmm. sense. I mean, I know you have like the debut of CM Punk happening pretty much. So and maybe they're just kind of banking on that. But I don't feel like it's a good time to necessarily like, you know, take your foot off the gas here. Like you want Rampage to feel like can't miss tv and like these matches that they have set up besides like the tag team eliminator tournament match i don't know they just felt a little lackluster like they felt like glorified dark matches to me i mean i think garcia and moxley will put on a good show but i agree like that's not like as a main event really and Uh maybe that's not the main event match i mean i'm guessing that they're trying to set up garcia as like a bigger player but still he's relatively new He's hanging out with like 2.0. I, I they had him like jump Moxley and Kingston, you know, on the way to the ring. I still don't understand what they were doing on the way to the ring. That was still confusing to me, especially since we know that like you know the Darby and you know Sting match was supposed to be taking place. Now, you know, first on so the show they were going to say something, but I don't know. Well, they never said it, so it was a little I know. weird. Uh, <laughs> Uh, also, I want to point out, too, like, Moxley's promo was very heelish to me. Mm-hmm. So do you think we're going to possibly get a heel turn from him? Uh, I think there's a lot of potential for it. <laughs> I wouldn't mind seeing it. Like, I was surprised with him, like, calling out, like, not just heels, but a lot of baby faces. Like, he calls out mm-hmm. Hangman Page and, you know, says the cowboy thing is bullshit and he talks about like you know newcomers in here like after him like being like this like pillar of AEW that they think they can just come here and like reap the benefits of his all all of his hard work it just felt like a classic heel promo so like i don't know we'll see where this goes um you know maybe he eventually turns on kingston oh uh, i mean that would be a good match for the new york showing but i mean that's too soon i guess Maybe we'll see. We'll see what happens. But yeah, anyway, back to the Rampage card. I mean, once again, maybe they're just banking on CM Punk being a huge draw. I am excited for the whole Eliminator Tag Team Tournament, you know, thing that they got going on. I guess the winner ends up, you know, wrestling the Young Bucks at All Out uh, in a cage. I can't imagine Jurassic Express not winning this. Because it felt like they kind of set up the storyline, you know, in the match just for them after, you know, they got jumped by the super elite in the ring. Um, mm-hmm. What we'll see. But like this match here, like I, I don't know. I can't imagine them not beating Private Party. And I think we've seen them beat Private Party several times when they're feuding with whatever Matt Hardy group is called. Yeah, I don't know. The Hardy home something. I don't know. Something like that. <laughs> well, who cares? <laughs> and then what's the other match that we have on this card? Um, it's Kira Hogan versus Jade Cargill. Yeah, Jade's still really green. So I... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I... And- In all fairness, I haven't been watching Dark, so I really don't know Kira Hogan that much. Um, supposedly, she's really over. 
but and maybe Jade is like coming into her own on Dark. I don't know. Uh, but that match doesn't really do much to me. It doesn't feel like you know must watch TV. That's for sure. Uh, either way, I'm gonna be there, excited, holding up the Amazing <laughs> Nerd Show title, no matter what's happening. Are you bringing there, the title? Oh, hell yeah, I'm bringing the title. Are you in, like, the rafters, though, with Sting? <laughs> no, no, no. I'm, like, uh, medium. Medium area. You probably <laughs> could have got press passes, Christian. I, I kept looking for stuff. I don't know how press passes work. I still don't understand I'll it. I'll get Tony on the phone. Don't worry, Christian. Okay. Go ahead, man. I believe in you. <laughs> I'm just happy that you were able to get tickets. That's awesome. I know, um, right? So next week, we'll have a live report from Christian. Um I'm really hoping the camera catches you, like, you know, crying hysterically as your, you know, lifelong hero CM Punk, you know, makes his return to wrestling. I know how much it means to you. Are you going to wrap up your wrists like you used to and have the X's on and everything? Like I used to. Like you're, you're assuming that I've done Come that on, before. Christian. Now, I'm not going to lie. Do we tell I have the story of you, my... like, tripping in front of him? Like making yeah, I think we saw it on the podcast okay. at some point. <laughs> anyway, Christian was like crying hysterically at this like, you know, siding with CM Punk. And he actually like what? slipped on his tears walking up to meet him. And CM wow. Punk just busted out laughing, right? No, that's not Christian, how that happened that, at I all. I thought that's how you told He did. Story. Now, now. He did bust out laughing, but that's because me and this other dude tripped over each other in the process of walking past one another. Oh, it wasn't like in a puddle of your own tears. No, it wasn't in a puddle of my own fucking tears, David. I like my story better. Anyway. Fuck um, you. Should be. <laughs> but have a good time, and I'm looking forward to hearing all about it on next week's show. Exactly. We got to compare notes. And, of course, we, we got to talk a little bit of Dynamite next week and a little bit of SummerSlam. Maybe. We'll see. <laughs> Do we have to? <laughs> it's the hottest event of the summer, David. That's bullshit, We have Christian. to talk SummerSlam. I don't even know who's wrestling anymore. <laughs> Maybe we'll talk TakeOver. How's that? Maybe. No, we'll, Maybe. We'll, we'll, we'll... It's Saturday, right? Is SummerSlam Saturday? Yeah, and then TakeOver is Sunday for some reason. So they swapped weird. it. I don't know. I, yeah, something I with Vegas or something, I think. Or, I don't know. But anyway, yeah, we'll probably talk SummerSlam, I guess. Uh, we'll definitely talk AEW and Dynamite because a lot of shit went down. So we got to play catch up. Well, that does it for this week. That's right. And as a friendly reminder, if you're listening to us on your favorite podcast platform, remember to subscribe, rate, and give us a five-star review. Exactly. It sure does help an independent podcast like ours continue to grow. And while you're at it, make sure to tell a friend. Plus, if you like any of the stories we talked about on this week's episode, make sure to check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to catch the full articles, trailers, memes, and more. That's right. You can follow us at Amazing Nerd Show on all social media platforms. And hey, if you're looking for extra content, make sure to catch our streams every weekend on Twitch, plus YouTube videos Monday through Friday. Want to support the show further? You can head over to tpublic.com and get yourself some amazing Nerd Show merch. We've got t-shirts, hoodies, stickers, and more. And if you post what you bought and tag us on social media, we'll send you some additional nerd swag if you live in the United States. Well, all right, Damon, what are we talking about next week? Well, Christian, we'll be reviewing the horror film The Night House, and we'll also be breaking down the third episode of What If. And, of course, we're going to be talking this week's episode of Rampage. Christian. Yes? It's clobbering time. Okay, I'm going home. <laughs> well, my name's Christian. And my name's Damon. And that was The Amazing Nerd Show.
everybody's attention now.